This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, December 14th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Grinch had his designs on stealing Christmas. Venezuela President Nicolas Maduro apparently sees himself as an anti-Grinch Delta Force, swooping in, securing the package, we have the package, and rewarding those who have not been naughty this Christmas. The besieged government of the beleaguered country of Venezuela accused the country's biggest toy importer of artificially raising prices by which they mean simply charging, for about 4 million toys. So the government seized those toys and they intend to distribute them to the little ninos. At a press conference at the toy company's warehouse, a government minister laid out his haul as one would the fruits of a drug bust and detailed the seized contraband. This clip is all in Spanish. I will translate. Hay aproximadamente 2.791.620 juguetes. Y en la Candelaria, el día de hoy pudimos detectar otro depósito en la que hay una cantidad aproximada, están contando, eh, 222.000 juguetes. There are approximately 2,791,620 toys, approximately. And we were able to detect another deposit of 222,000 toys. Now, there is only one known kingpin capable of cranking out such a massive supply. The shadowy red-suited figure goes by many names. Kringle, the saint, Big Daddy X-Mass, but we're on to him. Here now is CNN. This is actual. CNN translating the Venezuelan president Maduro's words. We have found a case of criminal hoarding of 4 million toys so the children of our communities, neighborhood, and government committees will for sure have their toys for Christmas thanks to our laws. This is like reinforcement for baby Jesus. Baby Jesus don't need no backup, baby. Baby Jesus and the manger force always get their man. Pa-rum-pa-bum-bum. That's the baby Jesus in the manger for Sting, you know, their version of the law and order. Boom, 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 boom. So here's what's really going on. Venezuela is an unmitigated disaster. Their constitution is in shambles. Past President Hugo Chavez relied on oil to prop up his ideas of a socialist paradise. Oil fell. Chavez died. And there, in an untenable situation, is Maduro, who has no good options, but continues, nevertheless, to take the wrong ones. Last week, Venezuela began printing 20,000 Bolivar notes, you know? That's the denomination of the currency. 20,000 Bolivars. The biggest denomination before the 20,000 note was a 100 Bolivar note, and that is worth about two cents. Although, since I started this podcast, it might be worth one and a half. The problem in Venezuela is not toys. It is roast beast, which increasingly in Venezuela is actual. Beasts are being turned into food. Baby Jesus is eyeing that donkey a little intensely. It's not funny. It's tragic, and I know that. And it doesn't seem like there's a good solution anywhere out there or being able to be implemented anytime soon. That said, stealing the Christmas toys and having the government distribute them, well... The three words that best describe that are, and I quote, stink, stank, stunk.
On the show today, don't let my laser focus fool you. The spiel is wonderfully scattershot. It's all the result of cat scratch fever. But first, The Daily Show, for 16 years under John Stewart at the helm, was the most essential viewing. It was a tonic to the Bush administration and all the bullshit of the world news. Well, the news hasn't gotten any less fetid, but Stewart is gone. All he leaves behind is a bunch of other TV satirist successors and one glorious literary achievement. The Daily Show, the book, its author, Chris Smith, is here to discuss this oral history. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is just, it's a conversation. This show isn't ending. We're merely taking a small pause in the conversation. A a conversation which, by the way, I have hogged. And I apologize for that. (laughs) You, I never, I really, I should have at some point turned the camera around and seen like, so do you guys have anything to add or anything? (laughs) I've really been dominating this in a very selfish way. With all the things that are going on in the world today, the one constant cry, the one solve to all the Trumpism that I've been hearing is this, why can't we have The Daily Show back? Now, of course, there is a Daily Show. There's Trevor Noah hosting it. He's putting his own spin on it. But what we had under Jon Stewart and all those correspondents was something special. In fact, it was the silver lining of the George W. Bush administration. It's now been collected in an oral history as told by Jon Stewart, the correspondent staff and guests of The Daily Show. It's The Daily Show, the book. And the man who put this all together is Chris Smith. He's with me now. Hello, Chris. Hey, thank you for having me. Mike? Did it strike you? So you are a magazine journalist. You write mostly about what? Uh, Well, city and state politics have been my beat for the past 10 or so years. But, you know, some cops and robbers, some sports, some pure entertainment. And you will write, branch out into entertainment. What about Jon Stewart in 93 compelled you? Is this young, good-looking guy? He seemed to be uh, comfortable with political comedy, whatever we called it then. That was rare. Then and now, one of the hairiest human beings. <laughs> yes, a furry I've, I've man. I've ever met. He's, you know, even early. John had a combination of humor and substance. His his stand up act was not particularly political, but he clearly cared about the world outside showbiz. Right. Like even when other comedians talk about you know seeking the truth, they did it. They often do it in a way that you could tell is part of the act, but it seems to offend him to the core more than most people. Yeah. And it's interesting, uh, Elliot Kalin, who's yep. been a guest with you, um, started out as a college intern and worked his way up through the ranks to the point where he was head writer at The Daily Show. Elliot told me about how in 2014, 2015, you know, they'd come into the writers meeting and Obama had lied about something or Mitch McConnell had done something, you know, just truly awful. The writers would be like, eh, you know, what are we going to make out of this? And John would come in genuinely outraged. Elliot said, it's not 
that he's naive, certainly, because he'd lived through 15, 16 years of this, and he's a smart guy. But John, to the end, retained a capacity for uh, being offended by bullshit that most normal human beings don't preserve. Right. It is a fundamentally decent person can't not see the un- the indecency in these acts. Right. And if you are captured by the system or if you become cynical, then you build up a callus. And so I guess he never really became cynical. He was unbelievably sarcastic and biting, but never cynical. Right. And that's a, a hard line to walk. I mean, and particularly when you're consuming, as he did, you know, 10 or so hours of Fox News and CNN and MSNBC every day, it almost was physically toxic. I mean, one of the things that John talks about in the book is for the run of the show for 16 years, he had brutal insomnia, you know, two, three hours of sleep a night. He finishes the show in August 2015. He sleeps through the night immediately and has ever since. And well, have you checked in on with him since November 8th? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, one of the things people inevitably ask him and me is, does he wish in retrospect he'd been on the air through the campaign? And his answer is no. You know, yeah. that he said what he had to say. He was burned out. You know, he says, have you ever been on vacation? And, you know, just if, if somebody comes to you and says, geez, you know, don't you wish you were at work yesterday? He's like, no. Yeah. Um, as a civilian, this is all incredibly painful to him. But uh, no, he doesn't wish he were back there. Does he think that The Daily Show, obviously there are ways and we could chronicle it, how here and there it called some people to account, it highlighted an injustice here and there. But does he believe it really moved the needle societally? Uh, no, that's a frustration. Not that the show's mission or agenda was ever to do that, to reshape politics Mm -hmm. or the media, but because he cared about these things and was talking about them every night, sure, it was frustrating to him that at the end of 16 years, uh, the world wasn't somehow a better place. Now, he doesn't give himself enough credit in some respects. Two specifics, the Zadroga bill, which he, at a crucial moment, helped push across the line in 2015. That's, you know, thousands of first responders, thousands of first responders and their families who are going to get medical care because of that. And the other thing, which is harder to measure, particularly in the wake of this most recent election, I, I talked to a correspondent who was only there two years and had a fairly unhappy experience, a guy named Dan Bacadal. Who's on Veep, who's, who's a comic terrific. genius. He's, yeah, he's yeah. terrific. This just wasn't his milieu. Exactly. But it, it, like a lot of things in life, people who have unhappy experiences, if they're at all introspective, are the best ones to talk about why didn't it work or yes. why does that place work? And Bacadal, among other things, said he didn't believe Bernie Sanders would have been possible if not for The Daily Show and Jon Stewart. And that's a stretch. But what he means by that is a generation of people grew up watching how The Daily Show and John deconstructed the media and politics. And a lot of them, you know, are in the Bernie camp. I think that's true, too, of a generation of media. You know, the media is a big thing, but there are a lot of people who did good work in this cycle who called bullshit, who annotated lies in mainstream publications, most of them print. And they're a generation that grew up watching John. You know, he doesn't get he shouldn't get all the credit for that, but it's it's a part of it. Well, certainly that technique that he and uh, the staff invented of just the juxtaposition of politician statement and politician contradiction. The media is shot through with that now. All these political ads are based on that. He invented that technique. The problem is 
we think that would serve a similar purpose as all these fact check columns. It's just that we've evolved or further as just as we have this truth uh, checking mechanism, we've further evolved into this post fact, post truth society that Colbert talks about. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's I, I know nothing about technology, but it's like software where, you know, you fix one virus and they've already figured out the next one. Yeah. One of the interesting subtexts or things I hope comes through in the book is how much The Daily Show and John's thinking kind of anticipated a lot of culture. And, you know, you forget. It sounds like ancient history, 1996, 1999. The Internet didn't really exist. And that kind of juxtaposing of uh, hypocritical statements, the annotating of lies, the pointing out of which is spin and which is posturing, that is now a common form of blogging. You know, that was something they kind of pioneered. And the technology eventually caught up with them in terms of searching video clips. You know, it took them six weeks to put together in 2003 a thing called Bush v. Bush, which was candidate George Bush juxtaposed against President George Bush on Iraq. And it was a breakthrough. We must stand up for our security and for the permanent rights and the hopes of mankind. The United States of America will make that stand. Well, certainly that represents a bold new doctrine in foreign policy, Mr. President. Governor Bush, do you agree with that? Yeah, I'm not so sure the role of the United States is to go around the world and say this is the way it's got to be. All right. Well, that's interesting. Um, I wanted to come back to the Zadroga bill because it seems to me that John Stewart and his staff, they had The Daily Show, which might not have dominated the ratings, but dominated a slice of the culture, like said everything you wanted to say, pretty much had as big an impact as a satirical show could have. Right. And maybe maybe we romanticize that and say that can change the world. But then he goes and lobbies for this bill. Mm-hmm. And he's doing what a lot of people have lobbied for a bill is uh, do. They use whatever influence they can. As a famous person, he has some extras. But sometimes it's just rich people. He, he pigeonholes senators. He has discussions down there in Congress. It's kind of like really old-fashioned. And he's what he's doing there and lobbying for the bill, it's not the most exalted example of lobbying. He doesn't have the most resources. So in other words, if you compare The Daily Show as what it does is the pinnacle and him as a lobbyist, what he does is just really garden variety. Yet that and the bill has the greatest real world effect. So that probably tells us something about just the limits of what satire can do to change society. Yes. uh, A a political consultant who I talked to about all that Zadroga stuff, who shall remain nameless, you know, said... Never underestimate the sensitivity of politicians to being shamed Mm -hmm. and that in a very focused, uh, concentrated dose was what John was able to do at that point. I mean, he's quick to give credit to all the first responders who were down there day in, day out for a decade lobbying for this stuff. And, you know, the metaphor John uses is, you know, his his weighing in on Zadroga was like uh, Patrick Swayze and Ghost. You know, that usually he was just in the subway yelling at people, John, right? But that if you could concentrate that stuff at the right time in the right place, maybe you could move a can. Yeah. Now, I'm old and I'm ancient, so I remember a ghost, but you know, most of your audience probably won't. Well, I mean, Unchained Melody, uh, <laughs> the, the uh, scene of sculpting. But I guess the big point there is that as much as we think politics is 
50, 60, 70% media. It's not. Poli- media is a smaller part of politics. The entire, that entire episode teaches us. It's, media is a smaller part of politics than maybe we give it credit for. And politics is politics. Yeah, and the other thing, and God, I'm, I'm sounding like this is like academic and dry. There's a lot of funny shit in this book. I yeah, promise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I promise. But one of the things, you know, John says that the, the, the Droga episode kind of encapsulates what The Daily Show in his mind was about all along was about pointing out stuff that seems common sense that government isn't doing. And I really think, you know, not that John has any sympathy for Trump, but what's beneath that is something that The Daily Show pointed out for years and years that on the right or the left, government's broken in a bunch of ways. And why aren't these by and large guys, some women, you know, doing things in our interest and not their own. And that's the core of the show with some dick jokes. I want to ask you about Trevor Noah. I don't, let's put it kindly, I just don't think he's the right fit. And it pains me that it wasn't given to John Oliver or Samantha Bee, or maybe someone I'm not smart enough to know about would do a good job with that. Right. I know that John is, tries to be as nurturing as possible with Trevor, but you disagree with the premise, but where, how did it all go wrong? Well, uh, two things. The book, John Oliver, John Stewart, uh, talk about why John Oliver is not the host of The Daily Show, how Comedy Central essentially bungled the mm-hmm. uh, moment where they could have hired Oliver. Uh, I think comedy is subjective. You know, uh, the important things here to remember is context. For the first year or two that John was host of The Daily Show, there were a lot of bad nights. I mean, they d- didn't know what they were doing in a lot of respects. And nobody was watching. They had the luxury of nobody really paying attention until the 2000 campaign. Trevor took over in a totally different environment, you know, where he's following this huge star. I don't know. I I think in some ways we'll see how it plays out poetically or metaphorically. It's kind of perfect that Trump's about to become president Mm -hmm. and the host of one of our satirical late night comedy politics shows – grew up under apartheid, you know, so that's got some material traction. I don't want you want to call it potential, maybe. Yeah. Chris Smith is the author of or the compiler of The Daily Show, the book, An Oral History. (laughs) Chris, thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Last night, a cat jumped on my face. You know, it sounds better when you set it to the tune of last night, a DJ saved my life. Last night, a cat jumped on my face. Now, the ancients swore by the medicinal properties of a cat jumping on one's face, but I did not find that to be the case. The cat, described as a hairless feature who slightly answers to the name Oliver, drew blood from my lip and brow region and then bounded away as if, and I know this can't be the case, as if he were a heartless ambush predator that our species has fooled itself into believing has a kernel of kindness about him. That said, the cat left a mark, a literal mark, but also a psychic mark. Perhaps it was a little bit of that craziness-causing cat bacteria you hear a lot about today, but I could not focus on just one news item. As a victim of face pouncing, I became jittery. My attention flitted about to stimuli in the environment that represented any potential harm 
Luckily, I can report these various, this grab bag of news items to you in a segment called Last Night a Cat Jumped on My Face. An Alabama marriage proposal has gone viral. Shauna Blackman, 28, arrived at an Exxon station in Mobile, Alabama to find Dewan McPherson surrounded by police. The police had tasers drawn and Blackman knew that her boyfriend was armed. Quote, I was scared. I said he was going to jail. They are going to shoot him, she told WPMI TV station. But this wasn't what happened. It turns out it was a hilarious ruse and a wedding proposal. When Blackman approached McPherson, he pulled out the ring, and the cops, mobile police, showed that they were in on this potentially extremely dangerous stunt. This is the worst idea I've ever heard of on a couple levels. One, I'm just in general against the football team falls down for their manager who has developmental disabilities and he pretends he scored a touchdown, or reuniting the parents with the soldiers come back from Afghanistan in front of a full stadium of people, or the stunt wedding proposal. Isn't it an admission that you're not going to get your fiance excited enough just by proposing to her? You need to goose it a little with the, "Eh, I convinced her I was going to die. The police said they did it in a fit of community relations or something. And the original article on the WPMI website had this sentence. It was all staged to send a message about Black Lives Matter and to create a unique proposal. What was that message? That they don't? Refracted through how many mirrors or shots of whiskeys does this message make sense? ICE agents barged down the door of an El Paso family today who thought they were being deported. In reality, they just had good news about the daughter's college acceptance. The dad had arranged the whole thing. The wife is now in intensive care. The Russian government rolled into Crimea, It was really just the crazy Vlad Putin's way to ask a Ukrainian gal he was sweet on to prom. I also enjoyed this headline from Atlanta Black Star. Did this Alabama man go too far pulling off a police brutality-themed marriage proposal? It's one of those questions that answers itself. But in case it doesn't, let's hear the man describe his proposal. First thing they're going to think is, oh, we got another young black male going to get killed by two police officers. Nope, that was the whole flip. How he landed on that idea, I don't know. All I do know is... That's not a cat jumped on my face. The Washington Post had a full rundown of how Trump landed on Rex Tillerson, much in the same way that a cat landed on my face. Jingle. That's not a cat jumped on my face. The best sentence in this story had to do with why Trump didn't decide on Romney, and it was this. Trump was seriously considering Romney. He had a request, according to a close Romney ally, an apology. Romney, author of a book called No Apology, refused, the ally said. This reveals Trump's game, doesn't it? His priorities aren't to get a good cabinet. He just wants to use whatever means he has to humiliate people who caused him pain. Wait, what was Rick Perry's greatest gaffe? Uh, let's offer the Department of Energy. Hey, Rick, you want the Department of, uh, what was it? Energy? Oh, oh, he said he does. Okay, great, great. Every time I see him with that title, I'll laugh when I watch one of those shows. Hey, Kanye, Kanye, you're terrific. I'm going to make you ambassador to France. Just one request. Taylor Swift tattoo. You do it. Great. And now, the last part of... Last night a cat jumped on my face. 
Alan Thicke has died. Alan Thicke, the actor known for Growing Pains, was also a TV theme song writer. And he is responsible for two theme songs of mine and perhaps your youth. One was Different Strokes. Different Strokes is responsible. Perhaps you've heard of the term Mondegreen. A Mondegreen is a song lyric that is misheard, a famous one, uh, excuse me while I kiss the sky, sometimes heard as excuse me while I kiss this guy. There was a Mondegreen in the middle of Different Strokes. It was something a little different from most Mondegreens. It was what I call a bone degreen, meaning it was a misheard song lyric that improves the song. There is a bathroom on the right does not improve. There is a bad moon on the rise. But listen to this from Different Strokes. Now the world don't move to the beat of just one drum. What might be right for you may not be right for some. Now, I always heard that as along come to, they've got nothing but their dreams. And that is in fitting with the sort of lyric you'd get in a TV theme song. But it's not. It doesn't say that. You want to hear it again? They got nothing but They've got nothing but their jeans. Not with a G. I looked it up with a J. They were wearing a pair of jeans. I was a little disappointed when I heard the truth of different strokes. But the true story of its spinoff show, Facts of Life, and the theme song filled me with joy and discovery. The year was approximately 1981. I was in Atlantic City with my parents, and we went to see a show. There was a singer I had never heard of opening for, in my imagination, Don Rickles, but it was probably Billy Crystal. I definitely saw him in Atlantic City once when I was about seven or eight. And there was this singer, Gloria Loring, who I had never heard of, and she sang some songs that I never heard of as I was waiting for the insult comedy of Don Rickles, though it was probably Billy Crystal. And then she busted into, maybe you know this, this is the theme to Facts of Life. And I said to myself, well, this is great. I do know this, but what are they going to do? It's a 45-second theme song. Oh, no, because in that moment, Gloria Loring, who disclosed that she and her then-husband, Alan Thicke, wrote the theme song, went on to sing stanzas two, three, and four to the facts of life. I will play some of that for you now. When there's someone that you care about, it really is a fair some of these lyrics when there's someone that you care about it really isn't fair they're out to slow you up when you're growing up when you let them flirt and then you hurt awaiting when your date is late and showing up then you're growing up this is cole porter-esque internal rhymes you'll avoid a lot of damage and enjoy the fun of managing the facts of life they'll shed a lot of light if you hear them from your brother better clear them with your mother better get them right call her late at night you've got the future in the palm of your hand. Indeed you do. All you got to do to get you through is understand. You'd think you'd rather do without. You'll never muddle through without the truth. The facts of life are all about you. They really are all about you. A lyric that strikes true to this day and a melody that was not stolen from Marvin Gaye. 
And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson ain't a newbie cause along with Chris Berube, they produce the gist until they're dismissed. The call would come from Lick Tyhees, the Slate exec producer guy, though his fervent wish is to axe the gist. But that won't happen, I hope. Unless Andy Bowers leaves the content officer post. I'm talking about of panoply, though really what I'm talking about is you and me and the gist. Slate's The Gist is all about you. Um, Peru de Peru du Peru.